Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about SB8, that is Texas's fetal heartbeat bill. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, I would especially like to welcome any new listeners. Uh, this is a podcast that will apply legal theory and moral philosophy to current events in law, politics, and culture. Uh, now, real quick before we start here, I do want to apologize if either the audio or the video uh, quality of this episode is not as good as usual. Unfortunately, the license expired on the video production software that I always use. I can't afford to get a new license right now. So uh, I am using a program right now that is I'm, I'm unfamiliar with and is also just fundamentally uh, not nearly as good as what I'm working with. Now, I guarantee you the content of the video will be every bit as good as you have come to expect from me. Uh, but if you're not already a subscriber or patron to the show, this would be a very good time to consider doing that. If you watch the show, you like it, and you hopefully get some value out of it, uh, and you can uh, make either a one-time donation or become a monthly subscriber. Uh, you can do that through uh, Patreon, uh, through Anchor. There's a bunch of links down in the description. Uh, anyways, uh, your donation to the show right now would be very, very helpful and be put to very good use so I can get back to making the kind of quality content that I want to deliver for all you beautiful people that you all very much deserve. So, uh, I will, like I said, I'll be putting links down in the description. Please uh, take a moment and consider joining me over uh, on one of those uh, patron uh, sites. Now, I also want to say, if you're unable to contribute anything to the show right now, that's totally all right, and I am still every bit as grateful that you have chosen to give me your time here today to come listen to what I have to say and engage in this discussion on what is, uh, especially today, a very important uh, issue. And this goes for whether you're a first-time listener uh, or if you're someone who has basically been watching the show since day one. I appreciate you all. So, this is obviously a very controversial topic, and I want to be clear about something from the outset, and that is that this will be a discussion about the law and the substance of the bill. This will not in any way be a, uh, a personal opinion about it or my own value judgment on it. This is a strictly legal discussion of the law before us, uh, and the case that was recently denied by the Supreme Court, that is Whole Women's Health versus Jackson. So first thing to note, this law and case did not overrule Roe, and neither of them are in danger of overruling Roe. Uh, we will be getting to why that is later, but in short, uh, all, all women's health was was a refusal to hear a preliminary injunction against the hypothetical enforcement of SB8. 
and we'll begin into what all of that means and why none of this is nearly as big of a deal as everyone seems to assume it is. Now, the problem is there have just been so many examples, both from social conservative supporters of this bill, as well as liberal detractors who are horribly misinterpreting and misunderstanding the law, misapplying it, uh, and giving legally nonsensical arguments. And I think the uh, the biggest one, uh, for me at least, is people who are getting angry with the Supreme Court because they were expecting the court to take this case and uh, do something. But the, the, the thing is, this what was being asked in this particular lawsuit was something the court had absolutely no constitutional authority to do, and this bill wasn't challenging the constitutionality of Texas's law whatsoever. Now, it should be noted that this suit was doomed to fail from the beginning purely because there were several very big procedural conflicts that were baked right in. But as always, whichever side comes out unsatisfied after the uh, Supreme Court hands down an opinion and they don't personally like what happened, uh, they often just resort to saying, oh, this is the court acting political again. Um, now, that's not what is going on here. And also, that doesn't happen nearly as often as people think it does. And if you want some good evidence for that, generally, why that is the case, I strongly suggest you go back and you watch my video on the Constitutional Revolution of 1937, and we go back to the very issue uh, that is uh, colloquially known as the switch in time to save nine, that is sort of the point where people started mistakenly looking at the court and saying, aha, this proves that they are a political body making political decisions. That's not the case in general. That's not the case here. So, really, I will be debunking a number of common myths and misunderstandings from both supporters and detractors of SB8 and from people who have uh, all manner of opinion uh, on the case uh, of Whole Woman's Health uh, and the injunction that was sought and really the case that was thrown out because the court was being asked to do something that it had no authority to do. And for the record, I, I just want to say that I would, I think personally, I, I think I can make a good case for why, anytime the court stays within the bounds of their constitutionally delegated authority should always be seen as a good thing, even if it results in an outcome about an issue you care about and an outcome you disagree with the court over. It's always, I, I would much rather have the court acting within the bounds of its constitutional authority and making a, a ruling of some kind that I personally didn't like than the other way around. Now, if people are interested in what kind of procedural challenges could be brought forward in the future to challenge this lawsuit on a constitutional basis uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, and what I, I would be happy to make such a video for you all. Um, just let me know down in the comments if that is something you would like to see 
but I, I'll just say from the outset here that uh, this uh, this law is entirely inconsistent uh, with the precedent set in both Roe and Casey, uh, and therefore this law is facially unconstitutional. Um, and this will be getting struck down. Uh, uh, or, I'm sorry, this, this law will be uh, being annulled, essentially, is a better way to put it. Uh, but it just is going to take a little time to do because this bill was written in a very crafty way. Uh, and the usual means of bringing a constitutional challenge are made slightly more difficult by that issue. So let's start with a uh, clear summary of what this law actually does. And then move on to what the court's opinion actually said and did. So now whether you like this bill or not, uh, uh, you have to give a hand to the Texas legislature uh, uh, because they, whether or not you condone or condemn their actions, uh, or the substantive content of the bill, these motherfuckers should get an A-plus for effort and for creativity uh, with this workaround that they created that allows them to uh, sort of skirt uh, the constitutional challenge uh, that should be coming up because this law is, again, facially unconstitutional with the president set in Casey. But uh, essentially... How this works is the bill will ban an abortion after the detection of a fetal heartbeat, which is generally found to occur around the sixth week of pregnancy. Now, what makes this law unique and interesting is its reliance on an obscure doctrine from the common law of torts that is known as the private attorney's general that allows a private attorney to bring a suit in a civil court acting as what is called in a private attorney general. Uh, now, if you look down in the video description here, you'll find a link to a fantastic law review article explaining in general terms what this private attorney general is, what it does, why it was created, uh, how it's used. Uh, but for our purposes of this video here today, it should suffice to just give you a clear legal definition of the doctrine uh, and the private attorney's general doctrine is an equitable principle that allows a party to bring a lawsuit that benefits a significant number of people or which has resulted in the enforcement of an important right affecting the public interest and it allows that person to recover attorney's fees. The purpose of the doctrine is to encourage suits of societal importance which private parties would not otherwise have an incentive to pursue. So, the purpose of creating this cause of action by private individual in a civil court case rather than by the state bringing a criminal law suit uh, in this bill was done by Texas unapologetically on their part to make it much more difficult to challenge this law in court. That is why they wrote it the way they did. This is a very unique statute uh, in the way that it empowers private citizens to sue those who perform or facilitate abortions.
Now, again, I'm, I'm quite positive the civil liability scheme imposed by SB8 is facially unconstitutional. Uh, it is inconsistent with the abortion rights that have been recognized in Planned Parenthood v. Casey and the undue burden defense uh, in the statute is likely far too narrow to save it uh, from being ruled as patently unconstitutional. Moreover, I, I personally think such state private attorneys general laws that basically allow any person to sue over an alleged illegal conduct are really unfair to the defendant. Uh, I also think that the conservatives who are celebrating the passage of this bill as some clever, sneaky workaround, uh, and that the Supreme Court is something in the same vein, uh, that they have failed to consider just how wrong this can and will all go if the Democrats get too frustrated trying to overturn this law and instead just turn this precedent against other constitutionally protected individual rights, ones that conservatives hold valuable that are to them, uh, and I think usually objectively, under uh, a very constant threat, such as the right to keep and bear arms. Now, President Biden confusingly muttered his disapproval uh, by charging that the conservative justices, uh, in following procedural complexities, as he said, rather than using its supreme power to ensure justice, uh, made a mistake. Now, Biden is just simply making things up here. This court has no kind of majestic power to ensure justice. Now, along these same lines is the idea that you've been hearing a lot of people talk about about how the court should strike down the law. Now, many people just assume that they can do this, and many people recently have been demanding they do this. However, this idea of striking down a law itself is a myth. The justices have a very limited ability to prevent specific government officials from enforcing laws against specific people. The judiciary cannot magically make laws disappear off the books. This notion that judicial review acts like an executive veto constitutes what is known as the writ of erasure fallacy. And this is when the court declares a statute unconstitutional or enjoins its enforcement. This does not cancel or revoke the law. They have no authority to alter or annul a statute. Only the legislature can write, can change, and can repeal statutes. We're talking about separation of powers 101 here. Now, judicial review allows a court to decline to enforce a statute and to enjoin the executive from enforcing that statute as well. Now, at least the majority in this case, uh, in the, uh, pur the per curiam opinion, that was issued demonstrated an understanding of this writ of erasure fallacy and the role that it will be playing, uh, and partially because it also played a central role in a recent case, the California v. Texas case. 
And the Supreme Court said, uh, The applicants now before us have raised serious questions regarding the constitutionality of Texas law at issue, but their application also presents complex and novel antecedent procedural questions on which they have not carried their burden. For example, federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals in tasked with forcing laws, but not the laws themselves, uh, such as was established in California v. Texas. Now, I'm sure that Justices Alito and Gorsuch were thrilled to be able to cite uh, California v. Texas, but really, this proposition is foundational. Courts enjoin individuals, not laws. Now, it is unclear whether the named defendant in the lawsuit can or will seek to enforce the Texas law against uh, an applicant in a manner that might permit our intervention. The state has represented that neither it nor its executive employees possess the authority to enforce the Texas law either directly or indirectly. Now, this appeal was only lodged against a single state court judge and a single court clerk. Now, the district court has not yet certified a class. Now, Mark Lee Dixon, uh, his brief in this accurately explained the dynamics when he said, There is no certified class of state court judges that can be enjoined. And there is no certified class of court clerks either. Because the district court did not rule on class certification before the defendants appealed its jurisdictional ruling, the plaintiffs never addressed this problem, and they pretend as though their requested injunction can somehow extend beyond the named defendants to every other judge and court clerk in Texas, even though none of those individuals have ever been parties to this case. Even if the applicants received all of the relief that they sought by uh, seeking this injunction, every other judge in the state could have ascertained suits under SB 8. Now, that is why this case was a terrible, terrible vehicle for emergency injunctive relief, and the dissenters really just kind of glossed over this problem. So, again, this this is precisely what makes SB 8 a very clever and canny move. When the government plays no role in enforcing the law, like is the case with SB 8, the court cannot block the law from being put into effect. In future cases, the court can, and almost certainly will, assess the constitutionality of SB 8 when a case is brought that challenges the law on constitutional grounds. But in the case of Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, it was not the law's constitutionality that was challenged. Had that been the case, I'm quite sure this would all be a non-issue right now, because as I said several times, this law is facially unconstitutional. But what was being sought in the case, the court just rejected as part of their shadow doctor, uh, docket brought by parties, they were essentially seeking an emergency injunctive relief uh, for the moment 
the court was correct to reject this premature challenge. Now, another thing that you are hearing people say all over the place is uh, that the court should have blocked SB8. Now, this is a legal non sequitur. The appeal, as it came to the Supreme Court, involved a single judge in Tyler, Texas. Nothing, nothing the Supreme Court could have done would have blocked the law. Uh, now, used in this context, the term blocked is actually just legal gibberish that bears no relation to any conceivable power or procedure that the court had as any kind of option in regarding the handling of this case. Now, if by blocked, they actually mean the court should have granted the injunctive relief the case was seeking, which to uh, remind people was a request beyond the possible legal scope of the court. But even if they had hypothetically decided to grant the injunction anyway, this wouldn't have blocked anything. Even an injunction against Judge Jackson would have been meaningless as every other judge in Tyler, Texas could have still heard cases under SB 8 and I still have not seen anyone explain how the Supreme Court could have, uh, quote, blocked SB 8, given that there was only one name, uh, that, and that was the judge, Judge Jackson, one party who was named in the case. Now, had the district court used a single opinion to deny the motion to dismiss, certify the class, and grant the injunction, I think the situation would have been very different. But... The judge's piecemeal approach allowed the government defendants to seek an interlocutory appeal on the denial of sovereign immunity. But wait, there's more. Because of this clever flip, uh, SB8 essentially spiked Planned, Parenthood, Planned Parenthood's playbook. Now, it is now impossible to sue the Attorney General because the Attorney General cannot enforce the law. This law can now only be enforced by millions of Texans and there is no way to know in advance who would sue or which abortion provider they would sue. So, Planned Parenthood tried a different strategy. It tried suing Judge Jackson, the judge in Tyler, Texas, on the grounds that he might one day hear a case involving SB8. This is why the suit never made any sense. Judges do not enforce laws. They only adjudicate specific disputes between plaintiffs and defendants. If a Texan actually sued Planned Parenthood for performing a seven-week abortion, the judge would have to dismiss that suit after all. SB 8 expressly stipulates that citizens' suits must comply with Roe v. Wade, and you don't sue a judge to stop him from hearing a case in the first place. You let him decide the case, and then you appeal it if need be. So, the Supreme Court simply could not, as Biden suggested, exercise uh, some phantom, quote, supreme 
authority to ensure justice could be fairly sought, end quote. The fact is no such power exists in this case. The court could only enter an order against this one particular state judge, and that judge had no role in enforcing this law. The justices were correct for declining to intervene. One should never forget that despite its constitutional provenance and its majestic grandeur, the Supreme Court of the United States is just that, a court. It operates like every other court does. Its judgments only bind the parties before the court, and its, preced its precedents are not self-executing for non-parties. It is important to be able to distinguish between the judgment of a court and the court's precedent. Now, when Smith sues Jones, there is no doubt that that decision binds Smith and Jones. This is a basic legal principle known as a stoppel procedure. But, when Smith sues Jones, Bob cannot be bound by that case as he was not a party to it. That would violate the basic rules of procedure and fairness, yet when it comes to the Supreme Court, people flip that on its head and they say, well, the Supreme Court has ruled. That makes it binding on everyone, everywhere, all at once. However, this simply cannot be the case. Now, the Supreme Court's precedents are controlling for all courts. So once a precedent is set, all such future cases allow others to enjoin the decision. But that additional step of converting a precedent to a judgment is very important, and especially so in civil rights litigation. This is why talk about blocking the law is nonsense. This is also why when you read the dissenting opinions that each of the four dissenting justices issued individually, not a single one could articulate a way they could have stopped the law had they been in the majority. It, indeed, really, this case should have been unanimous. Uh, unfortunately, it was not. Now, Chief Justice Roberts and the court's three progressives wrote their separate dissents. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote uh, that he would have, quote, granted preliminary relief to preserve the status quo ante, end quote. But a remedy to preserve the status quo ante would be impossible in this case, which only concerned Judge Jackson. Roberts wrote that he would, quote, preclude enforcement of SB 8 by Judge Jackson, end quote. But again, Judge Jackson cannot actually enforce the law in the first place. The Chief Justice, who is usually a stickler for procedure, was really uh, surprisingly willing to invent new procedural rules to stop what he saw as an unprecedented law. And it is. It is an unprecedented law, that is without a doubt. Now, Justice Sonia Sotomayor made similar mistakes in her own dissent. She said, quote, the court should have stayed implementation of SB 8, end quote. But again, courts cannot block laws. 
court can only prevent specific parties from enforcing the law against specific litigants. None of the dissenters had any clue how to actually stop SB 8, not even Justice Elena Kagan, who was a fairly brilliant former civil procedure professor and lawyer. She had nothing. Now, in, in, indeed, even Chief Justice Roberts acknowledged that Texas, quote, may be correct, end quote. So why then did the dissenters offer a remedy that simply could not be granted? This quartet seemingly endorsed President Biden's mythical account of the Supreme Court. At least three of the four dissenters uh, deeply felt that because this law was so substantively unjust that there must be some way for them to stop it. But the fact is, not every alleged wrong has a remedy in the federal court. Now, in time, I am positive actual Texans will file suit against abortion clinics and those who fund the organizations, and the courts can then decide at that time if these suits are consistent with Roe v. Wade and its progeny. So hopefully you see the problem here. Let's say you're totally okay with violating the Constitution by insisting that the justices have an obligation to act, even if that action is facially unconstitutional, because for you, preserving an individual right protected by the Constitution is too important to let the Constitution get in the way of the Constitution. You now need to sue every single judge in the state of Texas one by one to enjoin them to the precedent, and that was the only way you would have created any real means of blocking the law as was brought by Whole Women's Health v. Jackson. So, when you look at it in context, I'm sure everyone would agree that uh, had you been in favor of that injunctive relief being granted, you would still have to agree, had you won the case, that you were still stuck with an unavoidably losing strategy. Now, none of this, of course, even begins to address the fact that there were numerous procedural reasons why the court could not have ruled on the case as presented, and to reiterate something I said earlier, there will be future cases brought to assess the constitutionality of SB 8, but for now, rejecting the premature challenge was still the right call. Well, that is going to do it here today on Categorical Imperatives. I want to thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, now, I, my today's Supreme Court history video on Planned Parenthood v. Casey in the last few days has just been blowing up. It's just been going crazy, uh, which it's actually, somewhat surprisingly, always been one of my more popular videos. Uh, but in the last couple of days, it's really taken off. A lot of people are watching this. I'm assuming this is a lot of people trying to better understand the situation. So I just wanted to let you guys know to be on the lookout here. Uh, in the next day or two, I will be putting out a similar video uh, about Roe versus Wade, and I will be doing essentially a case brief on Roe v. Wade and uh, who the players were, uh, what the law that was challenged, 
uh, what the court's holding was, how the precedent has played out, all of that good stuff. So be looking out for that uh, in the next day or two here. Now, again, if you're able to support the show, it would really, it's always appreciated. It would be especially helpful right now. Uh, but uh, if you can't uh, do that, all I ask you to do is just take a minute. And if you like the video, hit the thumbs up button. If you disliked it, go ahead and hit the thumbs down button. Uh, please leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about this. I do really always love to hear from people and get your thoughts on the videos. And then, uh, if, if nothing else... Uh, if you could just think of one person you know who you think would also find this discussion interesting uh, and just send them this video and help me grow the show that way, I would be very, very grateful for that help. So, until next time, this has been Locking Liberal, talking about the Texas fetal heartbeat bill for categorical imperatives, and of course, as always, Delinda S. Carthago. Yeah.